Hey, my name is Paige, one of our servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. Well, hey, we are in week three of a four-week series called A Familiar Stranger. It's a four-week series on the Holy Spirit. If you weren't here over the last couple weeks, we, we've really been trying to identify more more specifically, we've been trying to lay a foundation, not just for this series, but, but really for the next several decades as a church family, as a church community, as far as where we're going, just understanding more specifically who the Holy Spirit is, which is why in week number one, we talked about the Holy Spirit being a person to know, not a force to capture. And depending on your church tradition or denominational background, you, you may have always kind of thought of the Holy Spirit as just sort of some nebulous force. And, and hopefully over the last few weeks, you, be, you started to kind of begin to think about the Holy Spirit differently. And as a result, really my prayer is that over, over the course of time, we begin to recognize and grow in our awareness of the Holy Spirit with us more consistently. And last week, we tried to build upon week one's foundation by identifying the Holy Spirit is not only a person, but an equally, infinitely divine person like Jesus and the Father. It's the Trinity, the Father, God, Jesus, the Son, God, and the Holy Spirit, God. And and so the last few weeks, if you weren't here, and you consider Ethos to be your home church, and you're in the room, or you're watching online, I want to encourage you, if you weren't able to already lean in, to check out the podcast or watch the video, because, because this is one of those series, probably even more so than most other series, if I kind of pull the curtain back for you for just a moment. I was sharing with Courtney, my wife, earlier this week. I said it would be way easier to teach this series in one one long two-hour session than it is kind of in four individual weeks because each week we sort of forget what we were taught last week and so we kind of have to build a new foundation and there's new folks and new faces that come in and the Holy Spirit, maybe more than any other topic in the scriptures, requires a great deal of foundational understanding because of the extreme teachings that we may be seeing on other side. Again, as it relates to the person to know, not a force to capture. And so this week though, I want to go just a bit further, again, kind of building upon our foundation and talk about the Holy Spirit working through us. So if you're taking notes, that's kind of our working title this morning, because the first two weeks we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit not just being among us, but the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And now today we want to talk about the Holy Spirit working and moving through us. Now, Jeb, by show of hands, a little participation in here this morning. I, I, I want to just identify and help us to kind of all see just some of the different backgrounds and, and traditions that we come from. How, how many of y'all, if, you, if, you're, if you're okay with this, at some point we'll probably all have raised our hands. So just so you know, if you're the first one to raise your hand, you're not going to be the only one to raise your hand, okay? But how many of y'all would say you grew up in a more of like a Baptist background? Can I see your hands? Any, any, any form? Okay, great. Baptist background. How many of y'all grew up in like more of like an Anglican or Episcopalian, maybe a Catholic background. Can I see your hands? Quite a, quite a few of you. How many grew up like with a, maybe a Methodist tradition somewhere in that area? Yeah, okay, quite a few of you as well. How, how many of y'all grew up in like a, more of like a charismatic background? Can I see your hands? You probably should have both hands raised right now, but okay. All right, yep, you're with me. You're with me. And, and uh, how, how many of y'all grew up in like a Lutheran, maybe Presbyterian background? Can I see you? Okay, quite a few. How many of y'all like non-denominational? Can I see you grew up in a non-denominational? How many of y'all didn't, go, didn't grow up in church at all? Come on, can I see my people? Yep, there's quite a few few of you, you all probably actually have a better foundation coming into this series than probably anybody else does, to, truth be told. Well, I, w- I want to share just a quick joke with you. Is it okay if we laugh in church? Is that okay? Like, I like to laugh. Rod, I know you like to
like to laugh too. Okay, great. We're going we're gonna to laugh a little bit this morning as it relates to some of the different backgrounds that we all come from, okay? So this might be a little bit offensive depending on your church tradition. So just forgive me in advance, all right? Like, I'm asking for forgiveness now, so I don't have to ask for it again later, right? That's a, that's a, I, tr- I try not to teach my kids that, but I'm going to teach you that. Here we go. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to call the electrician and nine to say how much they like the old bulb better. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, since their hands are already in the air. Come on, somebody. That's, that's, that's funny. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The lights will go off at predetermined times. How many TV evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? One. But for the message of light to continue, please send in your donation today. Like, uh, that's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. How many Anglicans or Catholics does it take to change the light bulb? None. We use candles. How many Pentecostals does it take to change the light bulb? Ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Baptists does it take to change the light bulb? Change. Why would we ever change? Come on, somebody. There's more, but they just get more and more offensive as I go, and so I've decided. Okay, one more, one more, one more, one more. How many United Methodists does it take to change the light bulb? We choose not to make a statement either in favor or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that a light bulb works for you, that's fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship to your light bulb. Present it next month at our annual light bulb Sunday service. Come on, somebody. Like, that's good stuff. Forgive me now. Thank you. Honestly, I share that with you because intrinsically we already sort of know this. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, we all bring different perspectives, understandings, traditions into into the conversation, which is why we've been trying to identify more specifically in week one that we really just want to pursue truth in our journeys to know and be known by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we don't just want to pull our tradition into our understanding of the Spirit. We want to pursue truth. And so rather than get in defensive mode or kind of quickly disagree or turn to proof texts and learned arguments. We want to say, like, like, Holy Spirit, would you show us more of you? Because if you really are a person to know, not simply a force to capture, if you really aren't a formula in which if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll experience more of you, if you really are a relationship that I can lean into, then he will honor that. Because when you ask the Spirit of God, show me more of you, when you pray prayers that honor God, God honors those prayers. He really does. And so we, we want to lean into that. And rather than labeling one, per, one person or scripture or tradition as conservative or radical. We, we just want to focus on, God, what are you saying in your word? What's the truth of your scriptures revealed to us? We want to lean into those, into those promises. Because it's really easy as we, as we kind of all maybe inherently understand to become caught up in a theology, specifically in a set of doctrines or a formal way of understanding or a set of teachings. Specifically, it's really easy to get caught up in a theology of the Holy Spirit. And as, as a result, we miss out on the person of the Spirit, the expression of the Spirit in our lives, and a Jesus-like relationship with the Spirit. We talked about that Jesus-like relationship with the Spirit last week as we talked about how Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another advocate. If you were here, you, you may re- remember that. And the, the word another means someone exactly like me. That's what Jesus was saying. I want to send you the Holy Spirit, someone who's just like me. So whatever we kind of think of as we or kind of off there in the distance, and that's strange as it relates to the Holy Spirit. I want to, I hope that last week helped dispel some of those myths as we just begin to understand like, oh no, he's, he's just like Jesus. And Jesus wanted us to understand the Holy Spirit the same way that we understand him. 
And so today we're going to take what we've been working on over the last few weeks. We've, we've shown this slide now three weeks in, in a row, really because we're trying to building upon our understanding of the Spirit. In week one, we, we talked a little bit about how the Father and the Son relate with one another. And generally speaking, if you grew up in church, or even if you didn't, you sort of understand that relationship just a bit more. Last week, we leaned in a, a little bit further as it relates to the relationship that Jesus has and had with the Holy Spirit. And today, I want to I lean even further into the Holy Spirit working through you. But in order to do so, I want to begin in Luke chapter 3. This is, this is a space that we haven't turned to yet. This is, this is new information. So I'm not going to actually recap any more or, or, or kind of even go back to any of what we've talked about over the last few weeks. I, want to, I just want to begin new here. And here's where we've got to kind of begin to lean in. In Luke chapter 3, it says, when all the people were being water baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And and as Jesus was praying that heaven, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And when a voice then came from heaven and said, you're my son, this is the Father God. We see the Trinity here represented. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Just real quick separate side note unrelated to what we're talking about today. Dad, did you know that the three psychologists have, have identified this, that the three most important things that your kids can hear from you in order to help them grow emotionally mature? I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are really good at fill in the blank. You're really good at picking up toys. You're really good at saying I love you. You're really good at, at, at helping your mom and giving hugs to people who are feeling a little bit, like you're, like, yeah, you're really good at that. Like, like dads, come on, we need to tell our kids, well, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are really good at something, no matter how insignificant or small that something may seem. Kids need to hear this, and, and our Father God is modeling this right here to Jesus. He's he letting people know, this is my son. We go back to the beginning. We see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descend on Jesus. Now, if you're a little bit newer to church, maybe you're skeptical about church, maybe this is your first time in a while, all the Holy Spirit stuff can sound really, really weird. But here's what I want to just say. Our whole faith is weird. All of it. We believe in a God who stepped out of heaven into a bodily form, died on a cross, and then, oh, by the way, he predicted and pulled off his own death, burial, and resurrection. Then he kind of ascended and floated up on some clouds. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's like, he's like, hey, God, you should probably forgive them. Yeah, you're right, son. And the Holy Spirit comes. It's all weird. But even if you don't believe any of that, and you're totally skeptical about church, even what you believe is weird. Because at the core of what we all believe, there are so many questions that we don't have real concrete answers to. But I would encourage us this morning, again, if the Holy Spirit's real, and I believe that he is, and if he's a poor person and not a force, and I believe that he is, and you invite him to speak to you, he will speak to you. He will reveal himself to you. Because when you invite God into your life, God honors those prayers. Now let's just fast forward about six weeks. So from Luke chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, until Luke chapter 4, it's about a six-week time period here. And it says here now that Jesus went to the synagogue, and he stood up, and there was a scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. Now this scroll was written about 800 years before this moment where Jesus begins to read it. It says he unrolls the scroll, and he kind of looks through it and takes some time, and he finds the place where it's written. Oh, here it is. Hey, hey y'all, listen up. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. This word anointed just simply means empowered or has called me, has equipped me. Don't get too caught up if you 
Again, kind of depending on your church tradition on that word anointed, because some of us even carry some baggage when it comes to that word as well. And it just simply means the spirit of God has anointed me, empowered me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim this is the year of God's favor. God is going to show up in a really unique way this year in your life. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's identifying himself as the one that the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed 800 years prior would come. He's saying, that's me. Guys, I'm here. I've showed up. Now, just after that, right after Luke 4, this is now when we begin to see Jesus call his disciples. He begins to call people to come follow him, not just the 12. There were actually thousands of people at one point who were following after Jesus. It's then, after Luke 4, where he also begins to teach and preach. He begins to perform miracles, drive out impure spirits, raise the dead, gives hope to the hopeless, feeds the hungry. He does all of the Jesus stuff, the stuff that we hear about or maybe even personally read in the scriptures. We're like, yo, that's, that's pretty cool, man. Like, but how did he do that? And that's the question that I want us to lean into this morning. How did Jesus do what Jesus did? And now here's where I'm kind of changing gears for just, for just a moment, because this is the part where, where I, I just have this, because of some of the feedback over the last two weeks, I know some of us are like hungry for this in one sense. Like we, we, want, we want more of the Spirit of God. Like we're kind of just tired of, of in our own strength trying to, trying to fight the weight of sin on our own. And so I want to, like, how did Jesus do what he did? Well, there's really kind of two main or primary theories as it relates to the answer to this question. The, the first one is simply that this was proof that Jesus was God. He did what he did to prove who he was. And there is a ton of validity to that statement. In fact, we can see in John chapter 10, verse 38, that Jesus himself says, hey guys, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works that I've done. Even if you don't like me, even if you don't believe me, and the people that he was speaking to here didn't like him and didn't believe him. But Jesus is saying, look, if you don't believe anything that I'm teaching you, and you don't believe my claims to be the anointed one, then at least believe the works that I'm doing. And then you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, the only problem with that, and again, there is some truth to the fact that Jesus did what he did because it was his proving that he was God. But the only, only problem with that is that this is actually the only time in all of the New Testament where we see Jesus identifying his works as evidence of his sonship to the Father, of him being the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. In fact, all sorts of people worked miracles in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and none of them claimed to be the Messiah. And so I want us to lean in just a bit further and, and even kind of scratch the surface a little, bit, a little bit more. What are the origins of this belief? Well, believe it or not, this didn't really show up until just after the 18th century. It was right around the late 17th century, early 18th century, where people had a much more spiritual worldview prior to the age of enlightenment. Pre-enlightenment, people just sort of understood, or at least, at the very least, had a lot of faith in what we would maybe consider to be more spiritual things. But after the age of enlightenment, or the age of reason, where there was a lot of rigorous scientific, political, even philosophical discourse and arguments, and people started leaning way more into the intellectual, which was a really good thing, but pre-enlightenment, people would say things like, the sun has come up, God has given us a new day. Now, post-enlightenment, people would say, the sun's come up, 
It's not so much that God has given us a new day, as much as it is that the earth rotates on its axis about 1,000 miles per hour. It revolves around the sun or the star at about 67,000 miles per hour. You and I are just a speck of little kind of individual mass on a really great big piece of mass that inhabits an even larger universe. And therefore, that's why the sun has come up for another day. And of course, that's not wrong. That's all right. And yet, it reasons away the existence of God. And as a result, with the age of enlightenment, which again was a really good thing, but with it came a much more secular worldview that began to identify for the first time in human history words like natural and supernatural. Natural being that which is governed by the laws of science. Supernatural being the things that we can't explain it. Even with science, even with all of our intellect, it's supernatural. I cannot seem to make sense of it. And pre-enlightenment, kind of here's the point. So if you missed everything I just said, that's okay, that's okay. We're going to catch, catch you up right here. Pre-enlightenment, you didn't hear these terms. But post-enlightenment, you began to hear people say things like, oh, well, I don't believe in the supernatural. And the age of enlightenment actually took place in European nations that were predominantly Christian nations. And so Christians suddenly began to think and say to themselves and others, well, it's not because Jesus was human empowered by the Spirit that enabled him to do the things that he did. It's simply because it was just proof that Jesus was God. And as a result, people began to discredit the Holy Spirit's power in the life of Jesus. And again, it's not that this is entirely wrong. It's just, and here's the danger, here's the danger. It just emphasizes a reduced role of the Holy Spirit's relationship with Jesus and consequently a reduced role of his relationship in our lives as well. Over the last several weeks, over the last two weeks, I should say, since we kicked off this series, I've never done another series in four years as a, as a church. We're, we're, we'll celebrate four years here this, this fall. And, and since, since the genesis of Ethos, there's never been more people who have been coming saying to me, Jordan, that's the best teaching I've ever heard. And I'm like, please, tell me more. You know, like, no, no. I'm like, and, and I told Courtney this. I said, I said, why, why is it? I was like, because personally, I've been fumbling over words more than ever over the last few weeks. And I said, what, what, what is this? And I told my wife, I said, I think what it is, is because we're actually recognizing and speaking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is illuminating things in our own individual lives that otherwise have been lying dormant because we're giving place to the person of the Spirit, not just the proverbial force of the Spirit. You know what I'm saying? And as a result, the Spirit of God is alive and active in our lives, or at the very least, He desires to be. And when we recognize, honor, and bring awareness to the work of God through the Spirit in our lives, he begins to do things that open up our eyes in ways that previously they had not been opened. And as a result, that's why I heard one of my friends tell me one time, he said, I always think it's funny when people say, that's the best message I ever heard. I always want to tune in and lean back into them and say, no, it's just the best you ever listened. Last week was better than this week. It's just the best you ever listened. Well, I think as it relates to the Holy Spirit, much of the same can be said to be true. No, it's just the best that we've ever actually begun to honor the Spirit in our lives. And consequently, we're beginning to see like, wow, like you're showing me things that I didn't previously know. 
D.A. Carson, in his book, Showing the Spirit, which is really a, a kind of a theological exposition on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and, and it's a really great, really great book, but he, he says in his book that what is most distressing about many teachings in the Holy Spirit is that so much religious energy is expended on the relatively peripheral at the expense of what is central and focal in all Christian godliness. He actually goes on in his book, in his discourse, to begin to describe how so often we speak about the function of the Spirit, but we're negligent to understand the relationship with the Spirit. Which leads me to the second thing, the second theory as to how did Jesus do what he did? And this is where I would say I give most credit to you. This is where I strongly agree with. That he did it as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Think about this for just a moment. Those of you who kind of grew up in church, you, you love the scriptures. Before Jesus' water baptism and the Spirit of God resting on him for 30 years, Jesus didn't do anything. Suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and empowers Jesus after his baptism. He begins to teach and preach and work miracles and call his disciples. And it all started after the Holy Spirit anointed or empowered him. Even Peter said this in Acts chapter 10, verse 37. One of the first 12 disciples of Jesus, one of his early followers, said, you know what has happened about the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed, there's that word again, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Why? Because God, through his spirit, was with him. Now here's why this is so important. Just hang with me. We're going to unpack this a little bit more this morning and even furthermore next week. That what started with Jesus wasn't intended to end with Jesus. And the life of Jesus was not intended to simply be a case of evidence to convince you and me of his claims. His life is an invitation to similarly see what it looks like when a human comes into a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Not as just filled with the power of the Spirit like some of us have maybe, but rather, but comes into a relationship, identifying the Holy Spirit as a person to know, not a force to capture. Recently, as I've been reading through the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John more specifically, the first four books of the New Testament, the newer portion of our Bible, the, the stories of Jesus, it's become, I'm becoming more and more aware of the fact that Jesus was, Jesus created the truest home for this Holy Spirit of anybody who's ever lived. He created the truest home to the point where the Holy Spirit was comfortable to be his full self in the body of Jesus and through Jesus. Come on, how many of y'all know when you go over to a friend's house, you are not, you are not fully comfortable just to be yourself at your friend's house. But you walk into your home and you will take off your shoes, you even take off your socks, no matter how stinky your feet are. You put them up on the coffee table, you grab the whole pint of ice cream, not just this, don't give me just this, I want the whole thing. And you'll eat it feeling no judgment, no shame until your wife comes home and you're like, don't look in the trash can, right? Like, I don't know about you, but Courtney and I do that sometimes. We like, we'll eat the whole pint and then we'll throw in the trash can and we cover it up with more trash so you can't see low. Okay, that's just us, okay. You're like, wow, you guys really need to grow in your relationship. So anyway... But the Holy Spirit felt so at home with Jesus in a way that I would say few of us give him place to feel that at home. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus created the truest home for the Holy Spirit to, to inhabit. And then as we move forward from Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, we get all the way then to the book of Acts. 
And the book of Acts really is just kind of the continuation of the early church. It's the stories of people who went around just continuing the ministry of Jesus. In fact, we see at this point that people then are anointed at Pentecost, which again, that can be kind of another scary term for a lot of us. Pentecost is just simply the day of celebrating that annual remembrance of saying, man, I'm so grateful the Holy Spirit came to make me new, to come, to bring me into a relationship with him, with the Father, with the, with the Son. But it was on that day in Acts chapter 2 that people were anointed with the same spirit that anointed Jesus at his baptism. And Eugene Peterson sums it up best when he writes that God gave us the miracle of congregation or the miracle of the church, the miracle of his body coming together in unity, the same way that he gave us the miracle of Jesus by the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended into the womb of Mary in a Galilean village called Nazareth. Then 30 or so years later, the same Holy Spirit descended into the collective spiritual womb of men and women, which included Mary, who had been followers of Jesus. The first conception gave us Jesus. The second conception gave us the church. And this is what we're talking about. When the Holy Spirit came, he came to form the church because the rest of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the fifth book of our Bible is filled with ordinary people who were doing the stuff of Jesus, or at least they were attempting to do the stuff of Jesus. Check this out. They were ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff that Jesus did. And here's the unfortunate reality though. And some of you have experienced this firsthand. Because they were ordinary people, imperfect people, and because we are ordinary people and imperfect people, there have been and will unfortunately continue to be abuses and misuses of the Holy Spirit. And if at any point in your life you've been a victim of somebody abusing the Holy Spirit, of abusing, maybe misusing Scripture, misappropriating the role of the Spirit, I don't know if I can do this, but I just want to apologize on their behalf because that is not the heart of our Heavenly Father. And yet at the same time, as much as oftentimes we, rep- we would prefer that God maybe withhold some of that power from people who are going to abuse it, God risks power on us in order to reveal love to us. Parker Palmer says it like this, that here is one of the great acts of love, empowering another person, knowing full well that person will probably make serious mistakes with that power, knowing that those mistakes may be costly, even to the one who does the empowering. And yet he still chooses to release power and give us power to reveal love to us. Now I do want to go back to one particular scripture that we highlighted in week number one. It's John 14 verse 12 where Jesus again is saying, very truly I tell you, which if you're here in week one, you remember that this is Jesus's way of simply saying, hey guys, listen, this is really important. You got to lean into this one right here. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now we mentioned in week one that there is so much theological debate over what Jesus meant here in John 14. Is he talking about greater? When he says greater works, he's referring to quantity of works or quality of works, but to debate that, as D.A. Carson even mentioned, is to kind of find ourselves waiting in the peripheral things. The key word here that Jesus is wanting us to lean into is this word whoever. 
Whoever believes in me. This is not, the Holy Spirit is not just reserved for the uber spiritual for your grandma who prays three hours a day every single day. It's not just reserved for the person who went to seminary or has a couple courses to better understand the hermeneutics of studying scripture. No, the Holy Spirit is reserved for those whoever believes in Jesus. And, and this is what I'm, even, even those of us who maybe as a result of some of the shame that we carry from the decisions that we've made in our past that we haven't seemed to be able to break free from, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps you break free from that bondage of shame, from those chains that kind of weigh you down into leaning back into the decisions you made that God has already forgiven you of. You know, the last few weeks, I've, I've genuinely kind of felt this like, this burden for a lot of you because many of you are desperate for more of God, like for more of the Spirit. Like you're not satisfied with trying to break the, the yoke of sin in one sense in your life all on your own. Like you're, you're tired of just, you feel a bit underwhelmed when it comes to church. You don't want to play church anymore. You want to be the church. I was having a conversation with just a friend of mine just, just yesterday. We were just talking about like, man, like I, I just want more. Like, like all of this is a bit underwhelming as it relates to what the Spirit of God revealed in the Scriptures and what I even hear stories of some of the the fathers of our faith having experienced. Like, no, I want more. And God, if you've got more, then I want it all. I want it all. And I think a lot of you would say the exact same thing. And as a result, like I, I feel like, man, some of you are desperate for this, while others of you I'm excited for because you're hungry for this. And I've sensed that over the last, over the last few weeks too. And you're like, like man, like I... I don't just want more knowledge about God. I want to know him more. And I'm also equally full of hope because God is generous. And he is not reluctant to give and to show himself faithful to those who ask for more relationship with him. Last fall, in October, we were having a team night which we, we do twice a year where we gather all of our servant leaders together. We have a meal and we celebrate, we have fun and we try to laugh a lot. It's, so much, it's, actually, it's, honestly, it's honestly one of my favorite nights of the year. I, like, I so look forward to our team nights. And, and it was at this particular team night, last October, we were laying out some of the vision for, our, for the building project that we just broke land on a few weeks ago off of Africa Road that most of you are familiar with. And and, and it was before we had shared all of that vision with the church, we were getting ready to share it with everybody on that Sunday morning. And so Tuesday morning, after our Monday night team night, I, I sent a text out and an email to some friends that I wanted just kind of some, some constructive criticism. And I asked them, hey, what stood out to you that really resonated with you? What stood out to you that you didn't understand? Can you give me a little bit of feedback about some of what we shared at team night? So many of you were so generous to give us some, some feedback, but there was one particular, one particular friend who's several decades older than me, who I really look up to. He's, he's, he's someone whose who's life at his age now, I, I mean, like, I want to be like you. I really do. And, and, and many of you are familiar with him. He gives the, his name, some of you don't know, his name's Dana Donnell. He gives some of the best hugs in the world. Like, like, if you ever just are like, dude, I'm just kind of feeling down. Just even get close to Dana Donald. He comes to first service. You have to come to first. Don't come to first service, though. We're out of room. So, but, but keep coming to second service. But, 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 like, he just gives the best. He's just someone whose life and the grace and the way in which he models, he just, the way in which he follows Jesus. I'm like, man, I just love you, Dana. Like, you're just, 
You're awesome. You're such a gift to me, my family, our community here at Ethos. And, and he wrote this email to me. And I still, to this day, I actually printed it out, cut it, and I, and I, I pinned it to a, to a wall right beside my desk because I want to be reminded of it. And he said, Jordan, I love the vision of the proposed building serves the community. Offering meeting spaces. The notion that when people are there, they're struck by the heart of the church to feed the hungry through the food pantry and provide for the downtrodden. Prophets going to out of darkness and she has a name. But the church, but the church, Jordan, has to be so much more than this. I know you know this, but let me just lay a few things out that are bouncing around my head. One, what separates the church from food pantries around the city, from Panera who offers free meeting spaces or any other philanthropic organization? I long for the kingdom of God to come, for the power and authority of God to slice into this world and overcome the power in this world. I long for the oppressed to be set free. People healed, healed miracles, signs, wonders, for sons and daughters to prophesy, for old men like myself to dream dreams, for young men to see visions. I believe the church needs to be challenged to walk in this, Jordan. Like you stated at the end of the meeting, the vision of the church is for God's people to live radical lives outside of the building. I want to walk in this. I want to see the Holy Spirit move in power, people open up in conversation a supernatural vulnerability about their aches and life pains and a response is love, sacrificial love, a willingness to take a chance, to pray for God to come and meet them again, to reveal his desire, to see his kingdom come, to see his great love for people, rescue people. And I think this needs to be sown into the life of our church. I read that to you because when I read it, literally, I began to weep. And, and I share with first service that I cry more in first service than I do second service. And so I told first service, you should come to second service to see me cry less. But even now, I'm still struck with those emotions. Let me just, this is probably irrelevant. Maybe I don't even need to share it. But I saw on Instagram, you should never believe stuff on Instagram. And here's my real problem right now. But there was this preacher who was talking about how like, when preachers cry, and they cry at the same point in the first service they do in the second service, how they're just acting. And I'm like, like, I'll fight you, because this is not an act. I can't help but be overwhelmed by the emotion. I literally was like, I used to like you. No, no, I st- he actually is a really great. Anyway, that helped me to refrain from crying. But I was moved with so much emotion in that moment when I first read it, because I was like, man, I want that too. But my natural propensity, just sort of the way my personality bends itself, is to lean into the really, really pragmatic. And so even when I teach, I oftentimes think about trying to teach in such a way where, where I'm like, okay, I, I want to fit God into a box. And so when I'm meeting with people, mentoring, discipling, teaching, whatever, I want to kind of hand you the box and be like, here you go. Here's God. Do one, two, three, and your life will be easy. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. And unfortunately, one of the challenges that I'm often faced with, and I'd venture to say that at least half of you are faced with this too, depending on your personality bend. One of the challenges that I'm faced with is, is thinking too pragmatically about God. And as a result, I've tried to explain away in so many ways the mystery of God. And when did we start becoming a people that no longer give space for the supernatural parts of what we just can't explain? When did we stop believing that all of Scripture was livable? When did we find ourselves leaning so far into the pragmatic that we've escaped even believing that God could do things that we would say, I don't know how that happened, and I'm not even going to try to figure out why? It's just God. 
And that's what I'm saying, because I don't know about you, but I have discovered in my own life that I am no match for the power of sin. And no matter how hard I've tried, and if I can just be real honest with you, I've tried really hard in my own discipline. I'm a pretty disciplined person just by nature, and I've tried, and yet I've discovered I'm no match, and I'd venture to say that you aren't either. We need the presence, the power through a relationship with the Spirit just as much as Jesus did and just as much as those in the book of Acts did too. And that's what we're after. Because what Jesus started wasn't intended to end with Jesus. In fact, you've been anointed. You've been empowered. This is what the Apostle John, the disciple of John, the disciple John said, you have an anointing. It's the same word there, anointing, that we see in Luke chapter 4, exact same Greek word. In fact, he goes on in verse 27 and says, and that anointing that you received, it's not going anywhere. Like the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned last week, he's the ultimate friend. He doesn't leave us No matter how good your best friend is, at some point our friends tend to give up on us. The Holy Spirit never does that. He never leaves us. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones writes. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's honestly one of my my favorite guys to lean into. And and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was oftentimes, some of you will resonate with it, he was oftentimes referred to as as a charismatic Calvinist, which if you don't know what that means, it's okay, you don't need to. But, but some of you are like, it's, it's, it's like an oxymoron of sorts. He's like the Matt. If you want a good podcast to listen to, Matt Chandler is a great one to listen to. Like he, he's just a great village church down in Texas. I love Matt Chandler. I love his teachings. But Martin Lloyd-Jones like, really influenced Matt Chandler a lot. I guess that's why I went on that rabbit trail, which is neither here nor there. But here's what he said, that if we have what the first Christians had, why do we not do what they did? We must conclude that either God gave them more than he has given us, or we have failed to avail ourselves to what he has given us. Now, what has he given us? Three quick things. First one is, he's given us eternal life. And most of us understand that. We see that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift, this is what he's given us. It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's also given us the Holy Spirit, as we talked about in the last two weeks. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, where Jesus said on one occasion while Jesus was eating with the disciples, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father promised, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on the day of Pentecost, which you've heard me speak about. And third, he's given us spiritual gifts. Some of you, no, no, no. All of you, excuse me, all of us have spiritual gifts. Some of you have thought that the thing that you're good at is just a result of the fact that your mom was good at it. So therefore you inherited that. No, no, no. That is a gift that God has given you. Some of you think, no, it's because I practiced and I worked really hard and I exercised my gift over time. And as a result, I've become good at the thing that people see and say that I'm good at. No, no, no. That is a spiritual gift that God has given you. And the more that we recognize them as gifts from God, the more that we see the Holy Spirit as a result of our awareness of Him being the presenter and giver of the gifts, continue to exercise that gift in ways that you never imagined in your own strength you could have exercised. And there are natural gifts, yes, some that we would say, oh, that just, I can kind of explain that. But then there are also spiritual gifts, supernatural, I should say, gifts that some, in some way we're like, I just, I don't really understand it. And I, don't, I can't really explain it, but I'm not going to try to explain it away because my natural finite mind can't fit it into my small little God box. First Corinthians 12, Paul says it like this. Now about spiritual gifts, I don't want you guys to be uninformed. 
I want you to know about them. I want you to understand them. And I want you to understand even furthermore that every gift that has been given to you has been given to you so that we can help each other. Not so that we can make something of ourselves. Not that we can build a platform for, our, for ourselves, but so that we can serve people. Not so we can take advantage of them. Not so we can get something from them. Not so we can persuade them of something. No, so that we can serve and help and model what it looks like to be the hands and feet and body of Jesus in our day. In fact, anywhere between 9 to 27 gifts, spiritual gifts, are listed in the Bible. And that should kind of raise a red flag to you. Like, why 9 to 27? We don't know the exact number? No, we don't, because a lot of scholars kind of lump certain gifts together. And here's the point, though. The point isn't like, well, what gift do I have that looks exactly like what's thought of in the Scriptures? Because most scholars believe that the list of gifts in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 4, that they are not an exhaustive list of gifts. They're an introduction to the fact that God has gifted you in a way that is unique in order for you to represent the individual piece of the body of Christ that he has called, equipped, and gifted you to represent. Are you following along with me? Like we got a, a, a spiritual gift is a special supernatural ability that, that God gives to you. Why? So that we can advance his purposes in the world. That's why. Now hear me, hear me. You and I, we are not Jesus. That's not who we are. And yet, as clearly seen all throughout the scripture, we are the body of Jesus. And so Jesus works and continues his ministry through us. We're going to talk a little bit more about your individual spiritual gifts next week, how to exercise, identify, and properly use them. We'll get more to that next week. But here's what I want to just say, though. I'm just going to give you four quick things. And I'm I'm literally closing. I'm going to go through these really, really fast. But four quick things. What stands in our way, then, as it relates to actually living out and being the body of Jesus? What stands in our way today? Like, why don't we exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given us? Why do we lean so far into the pragmatic? Why do we try to explain things away the way that we have the propensity to do? I think the first reason, there's several more than this, but these are just kind of a few that we'll highlight right now. I think the first one is because we, we become students and not practitioners. After first service, somebody said, education isn't the problem, application is. I said, man, that's, that's so true. And I think for a lot of us, we, we even kind of fall prey to some of the, to kind of leaning into maybe trying to understand everything so much that we miss out on actually putting what we understand already into practice. What the first century Christians did, we study. The first century Christians were a lot of power and a little talk. And the church today is a lot of talk. And little power. It's a lot of exegeting the text. But no Holy Spirit. And as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, don't misunderstand me, it is both and. We need both and. I was reading an article recently by David Brooks. He's a New York Times journalist. And he was sharing a little bit about his story of how Growing up, he was a huge movie nut. Like, he just loved going to movies. In fact, by his sophomore year in college, he would go to, a, he would go to view a classic movie every single night of the week. 
he just loved it so much. And he said by the time he graduated with his degree in journalism, he said he got his dream job, or so he thought, as a movie critic. He thought, here I am, graduating, and I get to do the thing that I love the most, watch movies, and I get paid for it. And he said, but he discovered that over time, he, he stopped watching movies and started analyzing them. He said, over a longer period of time, he realized, I can't even watch a movie and enjoy it anymore. Like, all I do is just critique everything that I watch now. And he said he couldn't wait to find a new job because he wanted to learn to enjoy movies again. And it's funny because I think so many of us fall prey to that same thing. And I know that in my own life, something that really about a year ago, I, I felt like, I felt like I just kind of felt this prompting from the Holy Spirit to like, hey, hey Jordan, hey, hey, be aware of mistaking cynicism, bitterness, and minimizing the Holy Spirit. Be aware of mistaking those things for sophistication. Be aware of becoming so much of a student that you don't just try to practice what you already know. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of us. We become students, not practitioners. I think the second thing that stands in our way is we just have a lack of expectation. I was thinking about this recently, like, what if Jesus was following me around throughout the entire day? What would he say at the end of my day? Hey, hey, Jordan, hey, um, you really don't need me, do you? Like, you kind of got this whole thing buttoned up and figured out, huh? You don't really expect much of me, do you? You walk into conversations, and prior to getting there, you try to identify, okay, what's your problem? Here's the solution. What's the problem? Here's the diagnosis. You give them step one, two, and three, and you, you kind of just... You know, you kind of just set me aside. Oh, and by the way, pray a little bit too. Like, son, like you, you don't expect me to do something miraculous beyond what you yourself can provide for people. And I began to think to myself, God, I'm so sorry. I think our lack of expectation, like we talked about earlier in this message, it kind of in one sense puts the Holy Spirit under the rug. We don't become more and more aware of him. And consequently, we find ourselves thinking like, oh yeah, Holy Spirit, we'll put you on the shelf until we really need you and have lost total control. And then we'll say, I really need you, God, come. And yet God is saying, would you expect me to do something miraculous in your life every single day so that you can serve other people and be the expression of my body the way that I've called and gifted you to be. Could increase our lack of expectation. Eugene Peterson says it like this, that hoping does not mean doing nothing and hoping is not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It's the imagination put in the harness of faith. It's a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. And the third thing is, I think we just have a, a low stamina for disappointment. Like when it comes to seeing God do something special in our lives, to seeing the Holy Spirit reveal his gifts to us, I think we just have a low stamina for disappointment because the power of the Holy Spirit involves risk, wonder, and, catch this, disappointment. Because sometimes it doesn't always go the way that we thought it to go, but as a result, then we will kind of oftentimes abandon what we once believed and we will cater our faith and kind of morph our faith into our circumstances rather than 
allowing our circumstances to bend to our faith. And sometimes your circumstances won't change, and yet your faith shouldn't change either. Resist the human propensity to allow our disappointment to define our current faith. We need to increase our stamina. Increase our stamina. If you're a teacher in here, I want to encourage you for just a moment that as you go back into the classroom, expect God to do something miraculous in your classrooms this year. Expect that when you get that difficult student, that when God trusted you with them, that it wasn't God's discipline on your life. It was God saying, no, I'm bringing them to you because you carry with me your, my spirit. And as a result, I want you to reveal a supernatural peace and a supernatural joy that maybe they have never experienced in their home before. And so they are now being introduced to you and expect that God is going to do something in their lives. Expect, how bold of a prayer would this be as a teacher? And I know it's way easier, way easier for me to say than it is for you to do. What if we prayed like God? Students, what if you prayed, God, put me around the students who need you the most so that I can reveal Jesus to them, so I can reveal your peace and joy and love and grace and mercy to them. I think lastly, and this is where we'll close right here, what stands in our way, our self-centeredness. Do you want the Holy Spirit to move in your life? Stop thinking about yourself all the time. I'm preaching to myself right now. Stop your own self-assertion. Stop your self-indulgence. Stop your self-centeredness. Just submit to him. Just obey him. Take the commands of the scriptures seriously. Serve God. Serve your neighbor. Don't try to exclude yourself from certain portions of the scripture. Hang on to those that you like the most and exclude those that seem the most challenging or offensive to obey. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in and say, let me tell you about myself. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and says, let me tell you more about Jesus. Let me show you how beautiful Jesus is. And that's important to realize because God the Father emptied heaven of his greatest treasure. Then the Son shows up and he empties himself of his own glory. And the Holy Spirit shows up and he points away from his own glory back to the glory of Jesus. There is this magnificent divine selflessness that takes place between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And sometimes our own propensity is to say, look at me more. And I'm just telling you right now, like, may we be a church. This is our prayer right now in this particular season as a church. May we be a church that says, no, no, no. I, I don't want to become greater. I want Jesus to. And as a result, I need to become less.